This morning's sermon is Luke 18, verses 18 through 30. If you want to turn there, Luke 18, 18 through 30. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more. In this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Uh, Father, as we look at these words, as we look at the words of life spoken through Christ's own mouth, as we look at the account of this rich, young ruler. Father, I pray that you would give us a sober mind to ask the most important question in the universe. How will one be saved? How can it be possible God, I pray that you would grant us grace by exposing our hearts and by pointing us to Christ. Father, that you would work in hearts that have been dull, that you would bring life this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The sad journey away from Christ. That's what I would title this message. That's the way I view this account, this real life account that happened. It's tragic. And it's tragic because sin carries us away from Christ. 
What is sin? What does sin do? Romans 1 says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, and animals, and creeping things. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, verse 25 says, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. If you want to see sin at work, here's what it looks like. You have God of all glory, the one who has always been and who will always be the perfect holy one, the creator of the universe. And over here, you have creation, you have stuff, you have people. There's a difference between the creature and the creator. And what sin does is looks at the creator and says, that's what he's like. But I'm going to live and love the creation. It's the most insane choice in the universe. And it's a choice that even as Christians, you and I struggle with. And the unbeliever, the one who's unconverted, who hasn't been born again, is enslaved to. Adam and Eve have God on one side and a piece of fruit on the other, and they choose the fruit, and that's evil. Esau had God's blessing on one side and a bowl of soup on the other, and he chose the bowl of soup. And that's insane. And that's crazy. Achan had the living God on one side and a beautiful cloak from Shinar, a, a coat, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels on the other. And here's the account 1 Samuel 15, 9. I mean, Joshua 7, 21. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and the 200 shekels of silver and the bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And we look at that and we say, that's craziness. Then you have Saul, who's been anointed to be king over Israel. And God said to him through the prophet Samuel, you need to go destroy and wipe out the Amalekites. Men, women, and child, because they pursued Israel when they were leaving Egypt. And he says, you go destroy them all. The cattle, the people, all of them for their sin. 
Not that you're better. This is my judgment on them. God has the right to judge sinners. God has the right. And so he calls the king of Israel, Saul, to do that. The problem was, when he went to do what God had called him to do, we read in 1 Samuel 15, 9, instead of putting the Amalekites to destruction, we read this, but Saul and the people spared Agag, the king, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatted calves, and of the lambs, and all that was good, and would not... De- and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. It was too big a temptation. Here, God was clear when He spoke through Samuel. But when He went to do the job, man, these are good cattle. Man, these sheep are nice. Man, it, it would... Agag's pretty pretty impressive. I see how he became king. And so the devastating end of that story is that God said, no longer will you be king over Israel. And then you have the saddest account in the history of the world. You have Judas who spent three years with the Son of God. God incarnate. God in the flesh. The one who has the words of life. And in Matthew 26, 14, we read, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. What will you give me if I turn him over to you? Oh, 30 pieces of silver? Okay. The title of the sermon is The Sad Journey Away from Christ. How much joy did those 30 pieces of silver bring? What we read in Matthew 27, 3, then Judas, his betrayer, saw Jesus, saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned, betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. It's a sad, sad account. Did anyone have more privilege than Judas to be able to spend those years with the Christ and to choose creation over the Creator? thinking happiness would come. And I share those, that as an intro, and if you're like me, I mean, you go through these and you say, how stupid, how crazy 
can people be? And yet, our sin is just as insane as theirs. And we see in our account a young man struggling with idolatry, struggling with sin. And so let's look at Luke 18. The charge of this message is this, value Jesus above all else and follow him. If you value Christ, if you pray for the grace to value Jesus above all else, you will follow him because you'll always follow where the thing you value. Whatever you value most, you will follow. That's why our actions are often so condemning when we see our hearts chase after the wind. So let's look at the flawed question. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? A ruler, it's most likely this is a ruler of the synagogue. Someone who has been careful to obey the law. This would be one of the most moral people probably in Israel to gain that status. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Just to get the full setting, how the approach of this man happened, Mark tells us, it says, as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and then asked the question. So this is a man who saw Christ, went and fell on his knees before him and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Two flaws that Jesus saw in the question. Sometimes we'll hear there's no stupid question. Well, that's not entirely true because we can within a question, have false presuppositions. We can believe things, assume things that actually aren't true within our question. So therefore, to answer the question, the one answering has to actually help correct the question. I'll listen to Ask Pastor John, and people will ask him a question. He says, well, I think a better way to ask the question is like this, and then he answers the better question. The two flaws are seen in him approaching Christ saying, good teacher. Not because Christ isn't good, he is, but because this man does not believe Jesus is God. It's his standard of goodness that he's working from. And he knows that when this young man says good, he has no idea how short of good he is 
really talking about because then he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This young man has risen to a point of being a ruler. He's extremely rich. He's got the strength of his youth and he's got confidence. He's got success. He looks around and he says, I can do it. And he sees Jesus as an opportunity for his abilities to win again, to accomplish the thing that he's missing. He must be missing something because he's asking for something he doesn't believe he has. He's actually better than the Pharisee Back in chapter 9, when you had the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee was assured he had eternal life and was accepted by God. This man sees some sort of need, but he thinks the need's going to be met by what he does. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when he says eternal life, Uh, We tend to think of just life that goes on forever. And encompassed in that is that idea that there's the hope of the resurrection where we'll live forever. But when a Jewish man said that in Jesus's day, he was talking more about a kind of life or a quality of life. The, the greatest quality of life is life that comes from God. It's eternal life. It's where eternal joy, eternal satisfaction comes from. How do I get the best kind of life that no one can ever take from me and last forever? What must I do? The question, the way Christ is approached, is Christ is approached as almost like an addition to the law. You have the law over here that tells us what to do, and here's Jesus. He's a good teacher, and maybe he's going to tell me one more thing, that if I could do that thing, then my conscience will be soothed over, And I'll be assured that I have eternal life. Rather than viewing Christ as a savior, he wants another rule. He wants another thing to do. John 17, 3 says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. (laughs) If you want eternal life, you need a person. You need a relationship with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit living inside of you. That's what eternal life is, our 1 John 5.20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. So that's where eternal life is. 
Christ is, or that's who eternal life is. It's in Christ. If you want eternal life, you need to be found in Him, and then you're connected in the Father. So it's a flawed question. And the main flaw is a false sense of self-righteousness, that I can do it. I can do it in my own strength and in my own power. And so ask yourself, do you have a sense, a false sense of righteousness? Do you have confidence that if you die, you're going to have eternal life? Do you have confidence that you have eternal life inside of you right now? And my question is, is your confidence in what you do? Because if it is, then you have the same flaw that this young man had. But Jesus in his love exposes him. No one turns to a Savior until they see their need. Sometimes you read this and you expect Jesus to say, oh, you just got to trust in me and you'll have eternal life. And he would say, okay, awesome. I can do that. I can do that. But anyone who comes to receive God without repentance, without brokenness over their sin, cannot be saved. Because what saving faith is, is believing I can't do anything to put myself before God and God says, that's good enough. I can't do none of that. So Jesus needs to expose his self-confidence with the law of God, with the commandments. Jesus said to him, why do you, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You see, Jesus is basically saying, do you think I'm God? Are you calling me good? Because only God alone is good. Is that what you, is that what you're saying? He's not denying his own deity, but he's asking to find out, are you saying I am God? And then Jesus says, all right, if you want to go by what you can do, if you want to try to get to heaven by your own efforts, here's how you got to do it. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. What he did is he gave him five commandments that deal with uh, a person's relationship to other people. He didn't even name that you should have no other gods before me, shall not make a graven image, you should not take the Lord's name in vain. That, that's a person to God. He names the relational commandments to him. And he said, I've kept all these from my youth. Here's the irony. Well, then why is he here? Why is he seeking eternal life? He kept the commandments already. But his conscience, the law of God inside him, <laughs> brought him to Christ asking a weird question if you think you've kept all the commandments. And what are the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments are 
a summary of a whole area of life. Do not commit adultery encompasses do not commit sexual sin of any kind. Yeah, I've kept that. I've done that one. What did Jesus say? If you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. He had a false sense of goodness because he lowered the law to an obtainable external thing that he could accomplish in comparison to other people. But the problem is the law was meant to be attached to the heart and it's not just the outward action. So let me ask you, have you ever committed a sexual sin of lust? Well, then you've broken the commandment of adultery. Do not murder encompasses any sinful anger against a brother, according to Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) Have you fallen at that point? Do not steal. Have you ever tried to hide something or twist the truth, even if it wasn't a blatant lie? Just not tell all the facts about the car you're selling or show all the details or, you know, know, reading a sports magazine and then you hear your wife coming down stairs and then you put it away and grab your Bible and open it up. You see, that's lying. That's deception. Do not, and then he says, honor your father and mother. Have you perfectly submitted to God's authority structures he's putting in your life? Honor your father and mother being the first basic one that you're born in the world? His answer was, all these I've kept from my youth, which is a low view of God's law and a high view of his own self-righteousness. The purpose of the law for man was never to give life. This is the fundamental mistake of the Israelites. God gave them the law that was perfect and they thought many were deceived into thinking, oh, that's how we make ourselves acceptable before gone. Rather than looking at the blood that's being slaughtered every day and how somehow blood needs to cover sins, it got turned into uh, works where we present ourselves in our own righteousness right before God. And so Galatians 3.21 says this. If you have your Bibles, turn here because you you need to see this. Galatians 3.21. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So if you could get to heaven by doing the right things, then righteousness, which you need to get into heaven, would come from the law. But, in verse 22, Galatians 3.22, but the scripture, or the law, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 
Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. You see what he's saying? The law can't bring eternal life. The law is meant to imprison you. The Ten Commandments are meant to be given to man to show God's righteousness. These are a reflection of who God is and to show man, I fall terribly short and there's no way I can work my way to heaven by being a good person. In Galatians 3.10, just a few verses before that, we read this. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. So you want to get there by trying to be a good person? The Bible says you're under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So you have to follow them in the heart and in action. Curse be anyone who tries to do that. And then in verse 11 says, Now it is evident, it's obvious, that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Did you know every religion in the whole entire world basically is Here's what man must do to get to heaven. And the gospel of God found in the scripture is you can't do it. You can't be good enough. The law has imprisoned you. The law has made you shut your mouth so that you turn around and say, is there a savior anywhere? Is there any hope? And the law, when it does its work, binds a person up so they lose all hope in self-righteousness And say to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Is there a Savior out there? Galatians 2.15 We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. No one will be found not guilty because of something they've done. Well, I thought the Bible talks about works. It does. The Bible never talks about works as the grounds of your salvation. Listen to me. As the grounds, holy God, looking at your life, God will never look at it and say, that's good enough. But when a person is born again, we're created by God. We're a new creation. We're his workmanship for good works. But those good works that we do after being saved will never justify us one ounce ever. It's the fruit that flows out of our salvation, not the grounds of our salvation. What's the grounds of our salvation? Christ and Christ alone. 
Jesus taking your place on the cross, living the perfect life you could never live under the law of God, never sinning, and willingly taking your place, bearing the wrath of God for your sins. And that perfect life is God's righteousness given as a gift to people who have faith in Christ. So what Jesus is doing here is he's taking the young man to the law of God. And so far, total spiritual blindness. I've kept all these things. So Jesus is going to screw it in a little deeper at a heart level, at a value level. And we see the shocking answer. The personal reflection question of number two is, have I been exposed by the law of God? Well, here's how you can know. Have you thought in your mind that you're going to get to heaven because you're a good enough person? If you've thought that, you've never been exposed by the law of God. You've never understood what was required and how short you fall. So let's look at Christ's shocking answer. When he heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. <laughs> he's not saying you kept the law. In fact, he's going to prove that he broke all those things in this statement. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. I don't know if you write in your Bible but I would circle treasure in heaven because that's put up here as an option that this man can have, okay? Jesus said, you can have this, treasure in heaven. And come follow me. So on this side, you got treasure in heaven and you have Jesus. You get to be with Jesus. Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. On this side, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was, on this side, extremely rich. His possessions over here, eternal treasure, Jesus Christ. However rich he was, he was really rich for his day. And he became sad. It's insanity. It's not like Jesus said, sell all you have and get kicked in the head. He offered him eternal life with eternal treasure. You read Ephesians and your mind gets blown in the coming ages. God is going to lavish on sinners saved by grace. Unmeasurable, never-ending riches of grace, which our brains can't even fathom. One billion years into eternity, more undeserved riches of His grace will be lavished on believers, and it won't stop forever. That's on this side. Or his money over here. 
Remember the parable of Matthew 13, 44? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. You see, when the person understands that they were destined for hell under the wrath of God for their sins, going to be eternally separated from everything that's good, because when you're separated from God, that's what happens. But when a person's eyes are opened and says, Jesus died for me, my eternity is secured forever. Sell all that I have to get this. In his joy, the man went and sold all that he had. The parable of the, uh, of, of the kingdom. Treasure that's going to last for a few more years and then be given to your family and then your family's going to fight over it and divorces will happen because of it. And this is on one side, earthly treasure that won't last that doesn't bring happiness, that doesn't deliver, or eternal life with God in Christ. That's what was set before him. And it's so sad to read that he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Matthew's account of this even makes it more devastating. Matthew 19.22 says, when the young man heard this, he was given the two options. When he heard, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He looked at it and then he became very sad and he said, my heart and my life is in my stuff. And like Judas walking to his own destruction, he goes to his things. It's a devastating account. Verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those that have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Just so you know, if you're in this room, you're in the top 1% in the entire world of wealth. <laughs> That's just a fact. Our biggest problems are our stuff doesn't fit in our garages, right? Where are we going to put it all? How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God for it, if we were to ask the question, well, how difficult, Jesus, tell us, how difficult is it? For it is easier, this is easier, for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. How hard is it for a rich person? Well, if you could take a camel and you could get, you know, get him at its tail and start spinning the tail to a nice little thread and get it through the needle and pop the camel through the needle just so you know how hard that'll be it'll be harder than that you see right now those who were given ears to hear and eyes to see the disciples they asked the right question it's not a flawed question it's the right question the law of God has done its work God has created hopelessness in a man getting to heaven. And just so you know, 
in those days, if you were rich, the Jewish belief was you were more loved by God and blessed by God. Plus, in the Apocrypha, the, these books written in a time when there was no prophets in Israel, the 400 years before Christ, uh, there were, it, it was added into the Roman Catholic Bible in the 1600s, said the way you have your sins atoned is by almsgiving. So who could give more alms than a rich person? So they're shocked. If a rich person can't get in, then nobody can get in. Proof that that's how they were thinking. Look at what he, look at the response. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? If a rich person can't be saved, then nobody can be saved. This is from the Sirach 330 from the Apocrypha. As water extinguishes a blazing fire, so almsgiving atones for sins. See, that was the belief in Israel. Or in Tobit 12, 8 and 9 says this, It is better to give alms than to lay up gold, for alms doth that does deliver from death and shall purge away all sin. See, that's not the gospel. That's not what Jesus is saying. It is hard for a rich man to get into heaven. Hebrews 13.5 says this, keep your life free, not from money, but from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Don't you love that? That's Hebrews 3.5. Keep your life from the love of money, for he has said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. You see? If you get this, then you don't have to love this. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Ecclesiastes 5.10 says this, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has his owner but to see them uh, from his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, the poor, miserable laborer, right? Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not sleep. There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun, Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. You want to hurt yourself? Keep wealth for yourself. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. 1 Timothy 6 says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. Verse 8, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Anyone want to object? If we have food and clothing with these, the scripture says be content. Doesn't even put shelter in there. 
And then it says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and through its, and it is through this craving that some have wandered away, there's that picture, from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Is the richest person you know the happiest person you know? Probably not. Some of the happiest people I ever saw were in Africa. They had nothing. Three out of five of their children died before they're five years old. Joy is not bound up in the things we have. This man didn't know that. And then the disciples asked the right question. Those who heard it, heard it said, then who can be saved? Right? Not what can I do to gain eternal life? The disciples asked the right question. Who can be saved? You see, the big drama in Romans 9 is not how come God doesn't elect everybody, but only elects some for salvation. Paul's problem is this. How can God be just and save anybody? How is that possible? Who can be saved? That's the question. Lose all hope in and of yourself. And then God gives this wonderful answer. But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Which means salvation is going to come from God. And Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. He said to them, truly I say to you, there's no one who left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. He's saying, don't pout, Peter. <laughs> You've lost that which is passing away and won't last to gain eternal life. You haven't made a bad transaction. You've made the best transaction. It's been a problem since Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sin. They get exposed. They realize they're naked. Genesis 3, 7, the eyes were both open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. You want to know what that was? Work salvation. I feel shame. I have to cover my own Shame. At the end of that chapter, we read this. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them, which mean blood had to be shed in order for their sins to be covered. It was pointing to Christ. And God was saying from the beginning of the Bible, you can't save yourself. You can't cover your own shame. You need me to save you. You need me to live the life through Jesus Christ in the flesh that you could never live. And he needs to bear your shame and your sin. Colossians 2.13 says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. See, that's our hope. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us 
stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The law, God doesn't forget. God's memory from 20 years ago is as good as today. He knows everything you ever thought, everything you ever did. His law books are clear. They're precise. He knows. But for the person that turns to Christ, Sam Ellison, all of his sins, I've broken every commandment a million times over probably. Here's Sam Ellison. Give me that legal document. Let me nail it to the cross. Let me destroy that thing on the cross. Christ paid my debt for me. Next week, we're going to dive into what it means that only God can save you. This is what Jesus told Nicodemus. You need to be born of God, born of the Spirit. You can't do it. If you're here today and you say, well, I know I'm guilty before God. What hope is there for me? I just point you back to verse 9. Luke 18, pray the prayer of the tax collector. God, have, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, save me. God, give me a new heart. God, give me the new birth. Put your Holy Spirit within me. In my flesh, my heart desires creation over you. I need a new heart so that I fall out of love with the world and I fall in love with you. Ask God to do that. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for your word. We thank you that this account was kept for us. Lord, it's the biggest comfort knowing that my salvation is not based on my performance, but on Jesus Christ's performance in my place. That's true freedom. Father, I pray that everyone would know that peace. And Father, when we are saved, let us joyfully be about good works for your glory, showing off what the converted heart does. And all that's to your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.